Welcome to the show. I am so excited to share my friend Jason Muxworthy with you today. He is talking about at eight years old, how he finally recognized at that early age, he was starting to mask. He didn't even know what his own voice sounded like. I remember thinking something similar. What about you? Jason has just this incredible sense of humor, and he really lends so much fun to this episode today. And he talks about the positives in autism. We often fail to identify. We can easily pick out our challenges, but Sometimes identifying those positives, those are a little more difficult. And we talk about one of the biggest challenges I think we all face, distractions. You know, the guy in the back of the classroom with the runny nose while you're trying to concentrate and take a test. Yeah, that. Also at the end, and Jason and I were pretty careful to sort of, we want to warn you and kind of give you a little heads up. We're talking about Identifying PTSD as late identified adult autistics. This is something Jason has experienced and is going through currently. This is something that I have gone through in my past as well. And it's one of the things that we don't always realize that this is a possibility and how as autistics we are really susceptible more so than the general population to traumatic events, things that might just seem overly stressful to one person, to an autistic person, it could be exceptionally traumatic and can cause PTSD symptoms. Um, Jason does share and describe what it feels like for him. So if this is something that might be difficult for you, know that at the end of the episode today, we are discussing that. He also shares how to do the 54321 grounding technique and it might be something that you're interested in learning about and something that you'd like to try for yourself. So gear up, get ready, and have a great laugh with us today. And then also, if you want to stick around at the end, maybe look into seeing if PTSD could be something that you would need to look into in your own life. And, and this might resonate with you and might be helpful information to help guide you into the next step of your journey. Let's get started. Welcome to the Mind Your Autistic Brain podcast, hosted by Social Audi. That's me, Carol Jean. Today, my special guest is Jason Muxworthy. Jason is originally from Swansea, South Wales. He currently resides in Salisbury in the UK. He is an incredible person, and he and I have gotten to know each other really well, and he's one of my good friends. He has a university degree in building studies and spent over 20 years in architecture, and made a huge career change to his dream job as a train driver. He is married to his lovely wife, Penny, who I absolutely adore, and their precious dog, Oboe, who entertains me all the time. <laughs> he is also a writer and has an incredible blog article that's going to be published today on the Social Audi blog, and it's discussing how he has come out to the world as an autistic. Jason is a late identified adult autistic, just like me and probably just like you. He also has an article that's being published today. I mean, wow, he's got a huge, huge day today. Also has an article on Christian vision for men, CVM, and his article is also being published there. And I'll also have a link to that in the show notes below. Jason, welcome to the show, my friend. Hello there. <clears throat> Hi. <clears throat> So was that just like overwhelmingly too much? <laughs> uh, 
I was waiting for the fanfare. <laughs> well, I seriously, like, if I could do fanfare and balloons and all that kind of fun stuff, it would totally be going off right now. <laughs> you are really just an amazing person, and I am so excited to share you and your journey, your autism journey, today with our listeners. You ready to get started? Yes, I am. Yep. You're, yep. All right. So our first question is this. Share with us your autism story. How old were you? How did it happen? How did it? How did autism enter your world? Uh, really, um, I was diagnosed at forty-seven in two thousand and sixteen, but it was a whole heap of events and thoughts that led up to it. And thinking back on this, I really noticed something when I was about eight years old. Uh, I was, I can tell you exactly where it happened as well. And I was just walking on my own back to our, our house. And one of the things I did as a child was I'd do impressions of people, probably very bad ones for an eight year old. And I was walking along and I thought, I don't know what I sound like. I thought, I do all these different voices but I don't know what I sound like and I used to do these things to you know make people laugh and sort of accept me and things like that um, and I, looking back on it that was probably the start of masking really oh I, I think everybody just went yep I've done that I am I know exactly what you mean <laughs> Yeah, that was that was possibly the, the moment I I noticed it, and it developed from there, where I used to sort of just hide me under a load of jokes and witty comments and things like that for many many years, until it sort of wore a bit thin with the world, and then I just shut up. I just completely shut shut up. Um, it was only for a select few that I'd be the real person, like with my family, um, very close friends, and that they were the only ones that sort of knew me. The outside world saw something completely different. Um, mainly a very quiet, a quiet individual. That's what they saw, somebody who rarely spoke, um, who didn't want would only speak when pressurized into doing it. Uh, and that was in my working life. That was in, you know, my social life. I, well, I didn't really have a social life. And I was just this very, very quiet, became this very quiet individual, which was in my twenties. And anyway, life moved on and things happened. And we were, I, I met Penny and, uh, 1990, 1999 and we got married the following year I got to know my family and stuff like that and it, you know we were married for a, well it must have been about 12 years or more and I had a bout of depression in about 2006 and it lasted for about 6 years and life was a real struggle over that time. 
and something came up. I, I was sort of pushing myself at work to do things. And one of the things that we used to do as a team every so often, somebody would give a talk to the team in work about something that has inspired them. And I did, I, I thought, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. And because we were in architect's practice and I thought it was relevant, I did I did a short 10-minute talk about war memorials, you know, big war memorials of the First World War and stuff like that. It's, it's, you know, it's got architectural uh, relevance in it. And I gave this talk and that was that. And one of my colleagues, a chap called Steve, um, he and I were talking, and his specialism in architecture was as an access and inclusivity consultant. He was a trained architect, but his specialism was you know, disabled access into buildings, making buildings more uh, usable by people with various disabilities, seen and unseen. And he and I got to know each other quite well because we were both Christians and we you know, we'd meet for lunch and stuff like that. And he'd drop hints, which for an autistic is utterly useless. He'd drop these subtle hints and they'd just sort of bounce off me and it wouldn't register at all uh, about neurodiversity and autism and stuff like that. Nope. I thought, you're not talking about, you're just talking about that person. You're not, you know, there's, there's Nothing to see here. There's no hint in this conversation, yeah. right? <laughs> no. And at the same time, my wife Penny was, she'd seen some things on the TV. There was a program on here in the UK called The Autistic Gardener, about a guy who was a garden designer. Um, and she was saying, oh, you should see this program. He's autistic. Oh, right. Okay, fine. Uh, watch the program. Yeah, he's autistic. I can tell that because his hair is dyed pink. You're falling into the trap of what people think we should look like. Yeah, uh, yeah. okay, no, didn't didn't register at all. And anyway, 2012, changed careers. And I just, you know, I'd remembered these conversations. And what happened was I changed careers, got a job as a train driver, and it was a couple of years into that that the hints sort of registered that people had made. And I thought, I wonder. And every time I was taking a train up to London, um, the play The Curious Case of the Dog in the Nighttime was in one of the theatres in London. So a lot of the stations had the posters up and it's sort of half registered about the subject matter. And I thought, isn't it a book as well? I thought, oh, I wouldn't. So I, one lunch, uh, when I was up in London, I went, there's a bookshop at Waterloo Station. And I thought, I'll see if I can get the book. Have a look at this. Was, I don't read fiction. Mean f- fiction just don't work. Went in there, got the book, took it to the. I was still waiting to take the train out. I sat in the cab reading the book. Started reading the first chapter, and it's like, hang on, you've just described my thought processes. 
Oh, wow. That's, this, that's a this, huge this, light bulb this, moment. This, this, this is me here. You know, the way his brain functions, that's a, a normal day for me. Um, and what I read was a whole the part lot. about how he described how his brain worked that really clicked with you? Oh, um, the way he followed things. He saw something and he he had to see it through to the end. Um, oh, okay. So sort of picking up that thread and then following that yeah, 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 thread all yeah, the way yeah. to the end to sort of see what happens and where it leads. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. he, sees, he, sees, he sees the dog sees the dogs being killed. Well, why is, so it becomes this big investigator. He becomes this detective. Um, and I thought this, you know, I approach things like this, whether it was a problem in building, whether it was any piece of historical research I was doing, anything, I just go at it and go at it and go at it until I came to the conclusion, I don't know I wasn't there especially if it was a historical thing. Um, and I, I, I was really amazed by it. I thought, yeah, there could be something in this. These these people hinting stuff. Um, and this book. So I went online. I, I thought, okay, let's, ha- let's have a look for a test for Asperger's. Looked it up. Did the test. Yep, you got it. I think a lot of us get to that point. We're like, okay, let me just kind of go see what it says. And we go find some online tests. And sometimes there, I have a lot of friends that are like, I've taken every test out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I thought, yeah, I can, I can relate to a whole lot of this. Um, I don't like crowds. I don't like, I can't stand discos and nightclubs. I, I, I remember when I was, about 10 years old, they had a school disco at, in, at Christmas, 1979, in the hall, flashing lights, and they're just taking you back a bit, an example of this. And I can't, I can't even articulate how I felt. It Uncomfortable, that's what it was. There were lights, loud music, and I just felt my entire body get upset. And I locked myself in a cupboard for the entirety of the time this disco was going on. It sounds like a pretty good safe place to be in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, oh, I, that I, does I, not I just, sound pleasant. Yeah, I, I just locked, I shut myself in the cupboard. Everybody was like, where's, where's he gone? Where's he gone? Um, and that's not the first time I did it. I didn't realize that I had this, this re- adverse reaction to it. So schools have in, in another disco... After about half an hour, I've locked myself in the toilet. I don't want to be there. Um, I'm just really, really uncomfortable. Uh, so I thought, right, discos probably aren't for me. Um, <laughs> um, I used to make every, ex- every excuse in the book when I was a student. Oh, we go to this club. I thought, I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't want to go. I want to go to I want to go to a library or a museum where it's quiet and nice. <laughs> yes. um, and the carpet isn't sticky. <laughs> Ooh, I know, right? And I'm not going to be disgusted by every surface in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah. So anyway, going back to the whole diagnosis, I, I took this test. And I remember saying, saying to Penny, I said, um, I said, I don't know about you. I said, I've done this test and this research and stuff like that. I said, I think I might have Asperger's. Right. I said, do you think it's an idea if I went to the doctor about this? Well, if you want to go, you know, will you be happy if they came back and diagnosed you with it? I said, well, it would help explain a whole lot of stuff, I said. Um, I love Penny. This is like one of the things that I just adore about Penny. She's like, she she goes right to the heart of it. Well, how are you going to feel if you get the diagnosis? I love that she asks mm. you that. Mm, mm. I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I said, I'll have to wait and see. So um, I made an appointment to see the doctor. And I went in. I was sitting in the waiting room thinking, I shouldn't be here. This is stupid. This is daft. They're going to laugh at me. Um, what am I doing? Went into the, the, the surgery, into the doctor's consulting room, sat down, sort of stammered and stumbled over my words. I said, all right. I said, I'll go. You know, I was classic. I was classic autism, not even looking at them. The whole works, stammering, everything. Yeah, she got the, she got the full treatment. And um, I said, okay, I said, I'll come right over there. I said, I think I've, be, I think I've got Asperger's. I said, can I be, you know, undergo some sort of tests for it? Oh, yeah, she said, um, yeah, you're definitely displaying it. She said, I did, um, my background is in psychology. Oh, that's a relief. She said, I have heard of adults being diagnosed. She said, I'll make a referral. So a couple of months passed, got a letter calling me for uh, a referral at the local uh, hospital. And there were four or five interviews. I went through assessment interviews. I took Penny along and we talked about the whole lot, childhood interests, how I deal with certain situations, the lot. There, there was... There was one uh, point where he was asking me about my interests, one of which is the First World War. And he was asking me why that is my interest. And I went into the whole thing, the reasons why my personal connections with it. And when we were talking, I just started crying. I just started crying and I thought, Hold on, this isn't normal. This, 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 this is this is just strange. I'm talking about his historical event. I'm behaving as if I was the generation that witnessed it. I thought this is just so intense. Um. So, anyway, went through these assessments in 2016 and. Irony of ironies, on the 11th of November, Remembrance Sunday, <laughs> I was di- at Remembrance Day, I was diagnosed with Asperger's. I had a letter saying, yep, you're diagnosed, um, you need to make a, um, here's some information of a follow-up appointment and things like that. 
So we went along and it was a case of, yes, you, how do you feel about your diagnosis? I said, well, it sort of makes a whole heap of sense. You know, I know make more sense to me. So was um, it just this big relief to yeah. sort of finally have something that, that makes your life and, and why things were so difficult or yes. why things never seemed to make sense, make sense all of a sudden? Yeah. I, 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 over the years, I'd gone through quite a lot, which had been, um, perhaps I'm dyslexic. That was one thing. Perhaps I'm dyslexic. Perhaps I'm just a natural introvert. But, you know, all these little, you know, by comparison, little things. And when we went in for the sort of, to meet the, the, the consultant about the formal diagnosis, it was, yeah, well, how do you feel? Well, yeah, okay, everything's explained. I, I, I sort of understand where I'm coming from when I said I realised that my autism is totally different to anybody else's. I said the, the symptoms I exhibit are completely different. And unfortunately, with certainly, having spoken to a lot of late-diagnosed um, autistics, is that certainly in this country, you're diagnosed, congratulations. There's a there's a letter, here's a list of books, get on with it. You've, you've coped with it for 47 years. That's it. Oh, Jason, thank you so much for bringing that up. That mm. is the same thing that happens over here. And mm. that's one of the biggest reasons that I started doing what I do with Mind Your Autistic Brain. To put together resources for people like you and I, because you and I both sort of came to this in the same way in the sense that, okay, you're autistic, you know, yay, we finally caught you. Surprise. Hello. This is you. Um, now, here's here's some suggested books. Um, you've seemed to have figured it out pretty well. And I think those of us who are in that ASD level one, and, and I really hate to even use that because it it doesn't really fully express the challenges that we have. But it's like, because you figured out how to mask, you figured out how to go through the world, you know, hey, you conform just enough to get by. You're good. Go on about your business. <clears throat> and that is the absolute opposite of really what, what we need. And I think what you and I have, you know, talked about over the last couple of months and what you and I both share a belief in is that, we need resources. We need to be able to share our journey and talk about it with other people who are experiencing the same thing, but also to find those people who are ahead of us on the journey who have found some answers and, and helped to process. And, and I call this first phase, the processing phase, that you're autistic. Here's the information. Go read some books. And then you're you're sitting there going, okay, I've got three, four, some people, five or more decades worth of my life to now go back because as autistics, we're going to do it. We're going to yeah. go back and think through and follow that thread and think through our entire life. Now that we know we're autistic and go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Now that's now what happened to me makes sense. Now I understand sort of why I felt the way I felt. You know, it's kind of like you thinking about back to being in elementary school in the disco. You're like, I went and hid in the cupboard. 
You know, I remember hiding from things at school to avoid having to do these really overstimulating things. And as you start to process and go back and do that, there's things that happen that unless you're an autistic adult and you've been through the processing phase, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know that your body is going to get overwhelmed. Physically, you're going to be exhausted just from going through this processing phase with just the knowledge I was autistic this whole time. I knew I was different, but now I know why I'm different. And you start to evaluate everything that you've done to this point in your life. And until somebody ahead of you on the journey goes, hey, I just want you to know you're going to be physically exhausted. Heads up. This is not going to be an easy process, but you can get through it and you're, you're going to get there. And I can tell you a couple of things to help. But there's not anything. They don't have any formalized anything like that for us, which is why I'm here doing what I'm doing. And you're here joining us today to share how you've handled it. And I thank you so much for doing that because you do such a wonderful job of that. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks. Yeah, the, there are just so many things that now makes make sense. When I was a train driver, you'd go into the mess room, the crew room, there were drivers and guards in there. And there were some days, there's too many people talking. This is just driving me mad. And I just, just take myself off, off out to the room. And now it makes sense. It makes complete sense why I did it. Um, why I, I I know I can I hyperfocus, which was brilliant in my previous job. Well, is excellent as a train driver. You just there, and you have a lot. You have set procedures. You do things in a certain way over a certain route and things like that. It is a perfect job for somebody with autism, a, tr a train driver. Um, I was told I was perfect for the job by the guy that was training me for my first three months. His his reason was that you like working on a, alone and you're a miserable old so-and-so. <laughs> he didn't quite put it that way. Right. Um, um, it, was, it was a bit more colourful than that, but that was the first backhanded compliment I ever had in the railway. Um, you're like, I'll take it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, perfectly suited this job. He said, miserable so and so, and he said, and you like working on your own. And I thought, yeah, that's 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 the way I've always been. I thought when when I was doing a draw, when I was working in an architect's office, I shut everything out when I was drawing, to the point of I'd put my headphones on and block everybody out. Pity I'll help anybody that came up to me and asked asked if I wanted a cup of tea. They they would get quite a shocking response, but as far as I was concerned, the entire world wasn't going on around me. It was me in the drawing. Um, so yeah, that that whole element of it with work, it paid div dividends. I could, you know, I had that attention to detail. I was able to focus for hours and hours and hours on end on a job um sometimes i get totally obsessed with it uh, th there are so many things that i've discovered as a result of it um th uh, that are really beneficial are really beneficial uh, they say that 
autistics don't perceive emotion particularly well. We know that's false. Oh, that's absolutely rubbish. You, you can. I've when I was I went on to manage drivers after I was a driver, and you'd get guys come in the office, and you'd look at them and think, "Whoa, something not right here." He's trying to. You'd sit sit the guy down, lock the door, and say, "Okay, right. Um, see, so you got a problem here. Uh, make you a cup of tea." minute you turn your back, the guy's in tears. Woof. Okay, right. Here's a problem. We've got to sort, sort it out. This, this fella isn't going in a cab in that state. Isn't go, driving a train in that state. Um, and even when I did the, t- the, there was a test, another test that I did as part of the assessment with people's eyes to tell what mood they were in. I scored abnormally high on that by getting it right. Attention um, to details. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there are so many things that we're underestimated about, realising that there was, that there was, you would see things differently to the rest of the people that you were working with. And another moment, light bulb moment was I I was at work. I went out for my break, came back. And on the way back, I sat down, um, sat down opposite of one of the buildings in Salisbury. And I just looked at it. You know, re- relatively incongruous building, not, not the cathedral or anything that, like that. Um, and I just looked at this brick wall and I thought to myself, okay, people just walk past that as a brick wall. You see that wall differently. You can see things like the fact that some of the joints are thicker than the others, are narrower. The bricks are all individual. You can, you, you can see that, see that there are different patterns on them. Some of them may have been laid, laid the wrong way around. You will pick up on that. Everybody else will just, a lot of others will just walk past it because it's a brick wall. You've been given that gift to see that, to see what other people don't see. And, and this is going back to the whole humour bit, you can draw their attention to it by using humour. Um, because that's one of the things I found was that looking back on it, I pick up on these things and find them funny. And then I would incorporate my little mask, a little bit of my mask, which was a routine, a little routine about a certain thing. Um, a little running commentary, a few jokes and stuff like that about how ridiculous what a certain thing was. Um, and, yeah, I, I I think that's one of the ways I worked it out, just outworked it, I mean. Um, it sort of manifested itself by humour. Um, by- you know, Jason, <laughs> that's what I absolutely love about the way that you write. Your writing is incredibly insightful. It's very 
deep and meaningful, but you also have this fantastic wit. I mean, you find the, the thread of humor in something that can be really dour, mm. but you do it in such a way that it gets someone's attention. It makes them stop and pause and go, wow, I never thought of it that way before. And you bring this beautiful perspective when you write that I so connect with. And I, I can't wait for all of our listeners to, to read your article that's out today on the blog because just the way you, you deliver those differences, those details, that gift that we do have because we do see the world differently. And I love the way that you share it. So I can't wait for that to come out. And for everyone to enjoy that today. All right, Jason, you've pointed out a couple of things that you have found to be sort of the best part of the knowledge that you're autistic. You've said, you know, yes, I see the details. I go back and, and I'm seeing all of these things that I never saw before. And I have this ability to focus and concentrate that makes doing the jobs that I have done in architecture and in, in train engineering really beneficial. So if those have been some of the really great things, what's probably been the hardest part or the most challenging part of your autism journey so far? Um, distractions. Distractions. Little. One, once you see something or hear something, you can't unsee or unhear it. Um, I went to a concert many years ago and... We were sitting in sort of quite steeply raked seating. <laughs> and I went with my mum, actually. This is long before I was married. And we went to see this uh, particular opera singer. And we were sat there. And I noticed the guy in front of me was sat there and he was twiddling his thumbs on that. And I was trying to listen to the singer, and all I can see is his blue thumbs. And you just, I'm so glad to know it's not just me. I, 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 end, I ended up sitting on my eyes shut, and my mother's going, are you asleep? No. She said, what's the matter? I said, it's that guy in front with his thumbs. She said, do you want to swap? Swap seats. I said, am I all right then? So it's it's distractions like that that just really derail my concentration. Um, when I was a student, when I was doing exams, you'd uh, be in the exam hall. And I think I mentioned this to you before. Of course, exams are always in summer, hay fever time. Oh, it's lovely. And with our allergies, it's so much fun. 500 students in an exam hall all silently working away apart from the one with a hay fever and no handkerchief. Oh, good Lord. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. It's like two, ele two elephants cavorting in mud. That's all <laughs> you can hear. And I cleaned yep. that one. <laughs> For the love of all that's holy, somebody give this guy a Kleenex, please. <sighs> You, you, you just feel like marching to the road. And, and of course, you're working, and it, where's it coming from? 
and, and you, you're doing the whole 360 around you, thinking, who is it? Who is it? Or, or yeah, little, the, the whole noise thing um, is, is quite a major one for me. And then, uh, I don't know about you, but then I would realize the time and I would freak out going, oh my gosh, I've just wasted 20 minutes trying to just concentrate because I can't focus because of this annoying noise or this annoying person. Mm. And now I'm really under the gun because I have like 20 minutes left to finish this test. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, and you're desperately trying to see what the guy next to you has written so, so you can think you've got it right as well. <laughs> uh, oh, geez. Yeah. Distractions are probably, I yeah, think, one of the hardest things. That, that, that is, that is, it was a real, that was a real d- difficulty that, and of course, as a train driver, you have to be very, very wary of distractions, exceptionally wary of them. Okay, so um, I would imagine that you have probably found a couple of things that help you when those distractions come up. What are maybe one or two things that you found that really help you to sort of let go of the distraction and sort of refocus yourself or just sort of re? reground yourself to sort of block it out what have you found that works for you um thankfully i don't do any exams anymore uh which is which is a really good one um i i don't know whether i cope with that particularly well I really, do, I can, I can be on a, the, the, the best way of doing it is if you're out in public or something like that, music, put your earphones on, shut it out. You are not, you know, in an office scenario, I could do that when I was in architecture. I could do that. I could not do it in, when I was a driver manager, it was more difficult. Uh, well, it was it wasn't possible. Do you if think you now were, maybe just the benefit of awareness is probably the biggest help? Like for me, it's like they, I, they haven't changed. I mean, I still have those noise distraction, distractions, the, the textures, you know, just like oh yeah. all those kind of things. But I'm aware of it in a different way now. So it's like I'll acknowledge it to myself and go, yeah, okay, that's driving me crazy. And, you know, what can I do to sort of mitigate that? But I think for me, it's like before I knew I was autistic and then that was sort of why I was physically agitated or uncomfortable or distracted. Now, just like the the awareness, just the knowledge is sort of the big benefit from my perspective. Would you say that would be yours as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in times past, I have been quite devious about it. Oh, Very really? Deep. Do share. Oh, yes. When I was doing my initial training as a driver, it was three months classroom-based. So there were 12 of us in a classroom. And uh, the guy sitting next to me, he had this bag of hard-boiled sweets. Now, it's 12 of you together for three months you get to know each other particularly well you know you will get on on various levels and he's i'm trying to concentrate on learning the the really rule book and all i can hear is a hard-boiled sweet rattling around amongst his teeth oh geez i can't imagine oh that's horrible 
I thought, and he's not offering his sweets. What would you know? Would have depleted the supply of sweets, and you know he wouldn't have been there eating sweets. So, but then everybody in the entire uh, room would be doing the same thing, and I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, it would, just, it would have sounded like somebody swinging a bag, bag of marbles around. And I thought I got another two hours of this fella after the break. I'm gonna have to do something about this. I took the lawn at my own hands. You stole it, didn't you? <laughs> Not really. Um, I I took the sweets. Everybody went out of the room. I said, oh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be down in a minute. And they had one of these suspended ceilings with inlaid tiles in a grid. Um, and I got hold of the suites. I got up on the desk, popped one of the ceiling tiles, and put the suites in there. So he was technically, he was within reach of them, So, but he couldn't see and just put the ceiling tile back in its place, went and had my cup of tea, came back, and what's happened to my sweets? Oh, my God. He doesn't, he doesn't know that this bag of sweets are in the, in the, in the ceiling void. Um, when I was a student doing my, fi- my first year final... <laughs> Love it. I did so, something. I, I love it. I love the way you approached it, though. It's like I didn't throw them away. I didn't put them to where he couldn't find them. They were within reach. Like if he really wanted to find them, he would have found them, right? <laughs> so I'm not being yeah. totally devious. I'm just sort of being devious. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing was, his previous line of work before he came on the railway, he was a policeman. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't a detective. <laughs> I would gather. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to do similar things when I was in when I was a student in my final in my first year. I was in halls of residence, and the guys on my floor decided to play cricket. Of course, my exams were before everybody else's, and they were playing cricket in the room at the hall outside my room. So all I heard was the tennis ball, ba boom, bang, ba boom, bang. No. The key to my room unlocked other people's doors, I found out. Oh, that's found, handy. Oh, yeah, very handy that was. I found out whose room it was in. I got hold of the cricket bat. Uh, don't do this at home. I opened my window, my room, which is which was on the third floor, leant out of the window, and the window was in a big concrete panel that protruded slightly, and I put the cricket bat on top of the concrete panel outside. I'm sort of doing a Harold Lloyd hanging out the window. I just put it there, and it was, what's happened to the cricket bat? Don't ask me. But as far as I know, 30 years later, it's still up there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Can you imagine the person that found it, if it was ever found? <laughs> They're like, hmm, odd place for a cricket bat. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so... So anybody, if you're out there and you were missing your cricket bat, Jason hit it and, it, and you could go back and probably find it. <laughs> it's yeah, on the third yeah, we, floor. Yeah, we, Weekly Halls of Residence, H Block. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, that's that's me being, and I suppose in a way, it's the whole ability as an autistic to do things to, to see something that somebody isn't going to think of. Right. You can be pretty devious without knowing it. 
Um, well, I wouldn't say devious. I just think I call it being creative. Creative, yes, yeah, yeah. Creative yeah. thinkers. So yes. if, if that's been the hardest part, sort of the distractions and, mm. and sort of how you've learned to manage them is, is really great. Mm. I love that because, you know, Shereen and I were talking about this last week. I'm like, I unscrew light bulbs in places that are not mine and other people's houses <laughs> and businesses because the humming noise drives me crazy. She said, I have taken the batteries out of a ticking clock in a doctor's office before. And I'm like, okay, so it's just, apparently this is just not isolated. This isn't just us. You're in this game now in the, in this box with us too. <laughs> you are just really way more clever than I was. <laughs> I couldn't finish sort out that bloke that was sniffing in the exam hall, though. <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. There's some things we just can't do anymore. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I catch, I don't know about you, but I catch myself, like, gritting my teeth. And it's like I get so physically tense when something like that happens. Like, for the love of all this holy, would you please stop sniffing? Or would you shove cotton pads up your nose? Do something. You're driving me insane. <laughs> yeah, there's things like, would you like a handkerchief? I have one. Right. It's it's like, it's so funny. It's like, we would not get the subtlety of it, but yet we could deliver the subtlety of the message to someone else. <laughs> no, I'm okay. You've got sleeves. Use those. <laughs> Ew, gross. <laughs> okay. So if we have your best tips, we have your mm. hardest challenges. What of everything so far up to this point, everything that you've processed, everything that you've gone through, to another late identified adult autistic who's just starting their journey, maybe today. What's the one thing that you want them to know? The one thing that you feel is really important to tell somebody, like if you, if they came up to you on the street, you know, and you kind of got to know them and they shared with you, Hey, I just found out I'm autistic. I'm 40. What would you tell them? But I, th I think the, best thing to do is to find the positives in it. What am I good at because of this? What have I achieved because of this? And for me, it's actually quite difficult to do that, to realize that, um, yeah, I have achieved X, Y, and Z, because when I start something, more often than not, I will finish it, irrespective. Um being able to concentrate for long periods of time, attention to detail. This is for me personally. You may be great at art. You may be great at music. You may be one of those really lucky ones that can play by ear. You know, hear a piece of music and rattle it straight out on the piano. Um, the, just look at those positives and say, yes, I can do this because I'm autistic. Um, as somebody once said, if it was left to all the neurotypicals to make any advance, they'd still be talking about it in a cave. It was the autistic that got out and invented the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. <clears throat> Jason, yep. I, will, I really want to share, and I, I want you to share, because you and I both have PTSD. And there's so many of our listeners who are further into their journey and, and they're like you and I. That wasn't the first thing that happened. That wasn't the first mm. thing that, that came into our awareness. You know, 
yeah, we knew our life was tough and all these things happened and we finally figure out that we're autistic. We start to go through that. You know, we do the whole processing phase. And, and part of that, part of this is that this autism journey, this is lifelong and things are constantly coming up. You know, I have things that are still surfacing that I'm becoming aware of or, or being able to address in my life. And I know that you've had a similar experience. And I really think that what you have to share is really important and really valuable and can be helpful to somebody that's listening today. You started to recognize that you had hit autistic burnout. And in becoming aware of what burnout was as an autistic adult and sort of how it presented itself, you know, the loss of skills and abilities that we experience, you know, temporarily and sometimes permanently, depending on the severity of it in the time frame in which it happens, because burnout is not something easily recovered from in a short period of time. Um, you also uncovered through the process of just becoming a bit more aware, step one step at a time, that you indeed had suffered some trauma that results in PTSD. You mind sharing mm -hmm. a little bit about sort of how you started to become aware that, that this was possible and sort of how did you view PTSD and how did you become aware that maybe it did apply to you? Um, well, my common belief with PTSD was you had to witness something, a traumatic incident. For instance, having to live through literally the first half hour of saving Private Ryan in your life, or worse, or the Holocaust. Or it had to be a really exceptional um, set of events. You had to be in there experiencing, you know, people dying right, left, and center. And that's what I thought PTSD was because I had met veterans of other wars who had it. Of course, it wasn't diagnosed for them. Uh, one chap I worked with, he'd been in the Korean War and he'd be describing an event to me and he would say, you know what he said? I can actually smell the same smells he was having, he was describing an event to me as he was living it there and then he was standing in a drawing office physically but mentally he was still out on a hill in Korea with the Chinese shooting at him and everything and I didn't realize it at the time it, it never it never registered this was in the late 80s um, I'd, I'd heard a shell shock. I'd heard a battle fatigue. It was only until after the Gulf War you really heard about PTSD. Um, and my interest in the First World War, I read some books about it. And I, one of the first books published about uh, PTSD shell shock was a book called The Anatomy of Courage by a chap called Lord Moran. And it goes, he, he breaks it down because he'd seen it firsthand in the trenches. He'd seen it. And I think I really need to go back and revisit that book. Um, the characteristics of people becoming withdrawn, jumpy, the whole lot. 
And so I my benchmark for PTSD was a war. Was a war. Car accident, nasty car accident. Benchmark was a war. War, violent death in front of you. That was that was about it. Until I got it. And it happened back last year. Um in 20, you know, 2019. How yeah. how did you from that point start to become aware that this could possibly be PTSD? I think I remember you telling me you'd have a conversation with a friend of yours who was a retired policeman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was after a couple of months, well, in the immediate after, yeah, it was probably after a few months, it's it just started happening. I started having nightmares about work. Um, I started having, I'd be out with a dog or I would hear something and see something, somebody would do something, a name would be mentioned. And the best way I can describe it is like a giant shadow creeping up over behind you and just enveloping you. The whole memory enveloped you. You were back in that room. You were back in the the the, the events, the stressful events that led up to it. Um, there were things that happened that years and years ago that also sort of pitched in as part of the experience. Oh, wow. Um, so you were having sort of a, a compilation of trauma all coming out at once because this sort of opened the avalanche door, so to speak. Yeah. It, it was saying an ambush. It was an ambush. I'd had that physically when I was 16. I was walking home from a friend's house and I was mugged by a gang. And they crept up on me from behind and hit me, you know, beat me up. And it was like going through that again. Um, I, I can remember I was out walking the dog one day, perfectly quiet in the countryside. And it just, the best way I can describe it is like having a piece of wool on a jumper. And it's just this little end sticking out. You just sort of play with the end. Next thing you know, you've got no jumper. You've unraveled the sweater thing. completely. Yes. Um, and that's what it's like with the memory. You, it, it, it just comes out of nowhere. You just think, oh, an innocuous little thing, and that's the end, and woof. And well, how, did, little... how did you start to sort of understand and start to realize that these traumatic events were indeed causing PTSD within you. Like this was a real thing. Cause you were telling me, you know, I remember all of a sudden I just started getting really jumpy. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? and, um, and that for me, that was something that it, it surprised me. Like I didn't realize that that was part of it. Like it wasn't all connected. Yeah, so how did you um, go from thinking, you know, this has to be something that's horribly traumatic and, and somebody that's experienced war to, to be able to say this is a PTSD situation, yeah. sort of the, understanding that for yourself. Mm, 
the, for, to understand it, I, for me, the three markers were being jumpy, flashbacks and nightmares. And I thought, this isn't right. So that as, as, as he said, I have a friend who's an ex-policeman, but he's also ex-military. And I, I, I just thought, I'll stick my neck out. It was a bit like getting my diagnosis, asking for my diagnosis. I asked him, I said, Doug, have I got PTSD? I said, all these symptoms. I had, have I got PTSD? Yes. Before I'd even finished the sentence. He'd, he'd seen it. He'd seen it with colleagues. Um, and, yeah, he had first-hand experience of it. I thought, whoa, hang on. I, I, I can't have this. He's been in the military. He's been in the police. I haven't had that. Yeah, I've seen death, but um, all I had was someone being a bit nasty to me. Uh, how can that? How can that be? And I sort of started, and uh, it was through a friend of, <clears throat> well, actually a, a family um, member uh, who's done a counselling course. And she recommended a book to me entitled The Body Keeps the Score. And I've started reading that. And you come down to this, these three elements, these three elements, flight, fight or freeze. Those primeval elements that in that situation that I was dragged into, I could do none of them. So I, my brain gets shoved into this feedback loop. And I actually tried to explain it to someone who I thought was not going to get it at all. And I just used the whole analogy of electricity wanting to find the shortest path to earth. It's there all stored up. It's there, pulse it. And somebody comes along and earths it, and wham, it goes straight through. And that's what it's like with the memories. It has to go somewhere. I did describe it to somebody as like having a big zit. It just builds up and builds up and builds up until it, excuse you, and then it bursts or you burst it. And I said, it's like that in your brain. I said, all this energy that should have been vented in one of the three three actions flight fight or freeze you can't do and you're locked into this feedback loop you locked into it and it it just goes round and round and round and round and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and other bad experiences they throw their their bit of the two penna thin as well and it just grows and grows and grows until it manifests itself. It starts manifesting itself you should, because you start going through, picking through the memory for a start and you start thinking about it and that feeds it because you're reliving it. And then it builds, build, uh, built up for me, two flashbacks, two nightmares, two being really, really jumpy and sensitive to noise. Um, and it, sort of finally manifested itself back in May this year when yeah I, I mentally collapsed I mentally collapsed because I could and I remember the day it happened I just went out to the kitchen I was going to make uh, some breakfast for us both and I just slumped on the floor 
I was shaking. I could barely speak. Um, I took I took breakfast uh, into Penny, and I sat down and I was just shaking and shaking and shaking. And she, well, she thought there's there's something very very wrong here. Um, she rang the emergency number and said, "This is what's going on." And I was just like, I was just drained for that entire day. I could, it took me hours with my speech to come back to anything like normal. Yeah, it, it can be um, very exhausting and it's it's scary too. <clears throat> because <throat> you realize you're like, I, why am I shutting down? Why can't I say something? It's like, I. I couldn't want, I couldn't if I wanted to. It just, I know I have the ability to speak. So it's not like somebody cut my tongue out or, you know, my vocal cords rip out. I just, I, I can't do it. And it's like, you're just stuck. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's like the exhaustion, the physical exhaustion is just like, I have, I have no energy. I, I can no. just, I'm breathing and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. You can manage to, just about move out of the chair, breathing and eating, and that's that. That's it. I I struggled to take the, you know, the following days. I struggled to take go out for a walk with the dog. I that I really that was as much as I could do. And as I described to you some time back, it was this feeling of complete and utter em- emptiness. You felt like an empty shell. The way I described it is like being one of those choke outlines of a person who's just died. You, yeah. fe- I felt yeah. like that. The, the, yeah, the basic motor functions, and that was it. I could barely think of anything. Yeah, I had no interest in anything at all. I didn't want to read. I didn't want to do any uh, model making. I didn't. I didn't really want to. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to eat because I'd sort of get so wound up. I'd be sick and things and things like that. It was just a feeling of complete emptiness. Yeah. Um, Listen, if you're on the other side of this today, and this is something that you're experiencing right now or something that you've experienced in the past and and maybe couldn't put words to it or, you know, didn't realize sort of how the dots connect because, you know, sometimes those of us who also have alexithemia, these things sort of take their time to get to the surface. And, you know, I I love how proactive Jason is and, and his wife, Penny, because very quickly after his discussion with his friend and after, you know, we sort of talked through it, he and I as well, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to go talk to somebody and see. And so he, he went to a mental health care and he said, look, I think I might have PTSD. I, I really, we need to look into this. And, and that's where you started to sort of take those next steps. So if, if you're in a place where this is something that you've experienced in your past, and things are still coming up, you know, these are some of the physical experiences that you're having, 
this is a possibility and it's definitely something worth looking into because as autistics, we are incredibly sensitive and we tend to experience the world in a very strong way. We experience things in a very powerful way that affect us in a different way than those who are not wired in our way. And I didn't realize it at first for myself either. I thought, oh, it's not possible. There's no way that I can have PTSD. I was like, Jason, I'm like, I haven't had this, you know, horrible, you know, traumatic event in the sense that, you know, it wasn't like a cataclysmic action. And so it was something that I I set aside and didn't think it was a possibility. Um, And as I got into the autism community and started to learn more about autism and more about myself, it was something that I started to realize this is a possibility and this happens a whole lot more within the autistic brain than I realized. And I think Jason had that same awareness. Could I safely say, you know, include you in that? Yep. 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 That was certainly my experience. Yeah. And I think, you know, he and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago because I had had sort of a, a conversation that sort of triggered things that I had repressed for about 10 years and it just hit me really hard. And I was exceptionally thrilled because at the end of it, sort of several hours later, I had come to a place in my life finally uh, with awareness and just with sort of equipping my toolkit, my, my backpack full of tools, as my friend Sarah says, and I was able to think about and really process that experience, you know, because it was like Jason said, it was like all of a sudden I was back there in that moment and I was experiencing feeling physically and, and sort of almost like smelling and tasting and seeing that event. And for the first time in my life, I was able to identify it, to know what was happening and also know some things to help myself. And I think, Jason, you had something very similar happen not too long ago where you had sort of a similar result, if you don't mind sharing that. Yeah. Um, yes, it was, I was at work. Um, I know, got a part-time job, and I was just minding my own business, just doing uh, doing what I should have been doing. And uh, I was listening to some music on my earphones, and there was one word, just one word in it. And it was a name, and that was the same name as somebody who I'd been working with. And it, again, like pulling this thread, it just triggered this whole chain of memories. And I thought, okay, I'll do the grounding exercise. I'll do the five, four, three, two, one grounding exercise. Just go through the senses. And I started trying to do it, and it was like trying to wrestle a car that didn't want to stay on the road. That's the best way of describing it. The more I sort of tried to dive into, you know, sensing things in the here and now, and there was actually somebody working in the room with me at the time, and I turned to them and I said, can you help me? I'm having a flashback. I said, I don't want to sound over dramatic. I said, but can you actually talk to me, ask me questions? 
I said, so that I can sort of get myself mentally away from it. And and the, this girl, she just fell into it as if she did it every day of her life. She just went without any anything in the way of being judgmental or anything negative. It was just, how long have you been here? Where did you work before? And she dragged me out of it. Certainly dragged me out of it. That's the best way to describe it. And within five minutes, I was sort of back in the here and now. And since then, it has happened since um, for one reason or another. And I've gone through the 54321 and just really grabbed hold of it. Just really, really focused. And on the, I'd say it's happened three times since then. And the grounding process I use, it has really worked. It really has worked. Would you mind sharing that with everybody? Because I think yeah. that that's such a helpful tool. If you'll explain what the five four three two one is and how yeah. it works. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. Um, it uh, five. You just concentrate on five things you can see. Now, looking here, I've got the dog. I've uh, got the chair I'm sitting in. There's a cup. There's a window. There's trees outside, probably going over now with this rug on the floor. Um, then four things you can touch. Uh, the dog, the keyboard, uh, the chair, table alongside me. Three things you can hear. Wife's out in the kitchen. You can hear the dog breathe. You, you really, you're doing really well at this dog. I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, she's sitting on my lap for those of you who don't know. <laughs> oh, boy, is um, a good muggle bug. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, th- three things. Yeah, I can hear the radio on in the background. And then it's two things you can smell. And I can smell food being cooked. Um you know, if you, even if you blow your breath into your own hand, you can smell that. Uh, might be an unpleasant experience, depending on what you've been eating. <laughs> Hopefully you, uh, you, 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 won't, you won't get to step, step one then. You'll have knocked yourself out. Um, and then it's one thing you can taste. So, it you know, it, it can be so, it, the feelings. It can be um, whether there's wind blowing through your hair or... You know, you can feel the breeze or stuff like that, and just go through that. That that's that's what works for me. Um, yeah, so that's the that's the five, four, three, two, one. Apparently, there are others out there that are grounding techniques that are better than that, but this is the one that I found works for me. Absolutely, and I I think that's such a great thing, and and that's what they are called, by the way. So if you want to go out and do a little independent research, uh, they're called grounding exercises. And you know, a friend of mine, she actually uses a candle, 
because she can then, you know, she has got the, the visual and it's about engaging all of your different senses to sort of ground you into the moment. Um, you know, I, I've tried a bunch of different ones, even so far as to take my shoes off to go outside and to put my feet in, in the grass, the dirt, you know, whatever that sort of grounds you and gives you that physical connection. And then you go through the senses of sight, touch, smell, uh, taste. So all of those things. So Jason, thank you so much for sharing that with us today. You have been an incredible guest today. You have been so generous with sharing your experiences and your insights, things that have been really helpful for you, things that have been a challenge for you, and also some of your solutions and insights for someone who's just starting their autism journey today. Jason, thank you so much for being here. And be sure you go and check out Jason's blog article on the Social Audi site, and that'll be linked below here, as well as his CVM article that's coming out today as well. Jason Muxworthy, you're an incredible friend. You're an incredible guest. And you are such a wonderful example of everyone taking their journey in their way and their time and also being able to step back and seeing those positives, seeing those gifts. Because when we get our diagnosis or, or when we start to self-identify, we see all the negatives. We see all of the things that we struggle with. And it's often hard to step back and remember and remind ourselves of the wonderful gifts and talents that we have because of our autism. And I love that you look at it that way. Thank you for being here, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.